The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Now look with me, if you would, in Romans uh, chapter 5, and look with me at verse 18. Therefore, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many, that's all of humanity, were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many, that's his people, the elect, the saved, and the redeemed, will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, and it's here I think our translation, which I do love, um, does not come forth accurately. Uh, this statement that repetitively is used by Paul is one of a malediction. And I think the NAS more accurately gets at it. What shall we say then? Are we, that is those who are under the reign of grace, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, or more precisely, God forbid, a malediction. God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Then if you'll slip down to verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and his mercy, may this his word be preached for you. Please be seated. So let me make sure that I am on record in saying this. It is not, I want you all to know, it is not my intention to make Romans a lifelong study for you. That is not my intention. Um, but as a pastor trying to expound a text, I realize some of you may think, well, we're going kind of slow 
and let me again say that as you get to the further along with the subjects that come up, it does go more rapidly and larger sections can be handled at one time. But that's not where we are. In these opening chapters in general, and particularly this new section that we now enter, chapters 6, 7, and 8, we are at... We are in a section of Paul's exposition of the gospel of God that is intricate. It is on the face complex, yet it is profound. It is crucial. It is foundational in life. So when you get to something like this, here's the challenge for the preacher. Now, if we're in a small group Bible study... Which, if I could just be in a small group Bible study with all of you, this would be solved. And we could slow down, dig down, dig deep and everything, and kind of a captive audience every week. Um, then we could move ahead. But that's not where we are. Yet, I've got two choices. One, these truths that are so crucial can so easily be misrepresented that are so foundational in the challenges of living for Christ in a broken world and in the challenge of living for Christ with an old man within and a world outside, with the world, the flesh, and the devil. This challenge that's before us, these texts are absolutely essential, crucial, and foundational as to how to deal with the issues of life in the context of that. So I can't in good conscience in my desire on the broad basis of initiating discipleship in your life from the pulpit. I can't just skim through these things. I realize you could do one sermon on the whole chapter of chapter 6. But I don't think it does justice to what you need in life and at least where I need to initiate. And yet you can even go deeper in that small group study. Or secondly, we could just try to chomp down on the whole thing. I remember one time I was uh, overseas, and I was there for an extended period of time, and I was in a country that cuisine is not anywhere near uh, what I am used to eating. And uh, that was a tough two weeks for me. And uh, so when we were getting on the plane, the guy that was one of the uh, guys on the short-term missions team, uh, one of our deacons, Luke, by the way, he just went to be with the Lord two weeks ago. Uh, he turned to me and he said to me, he said, Pastor, other than hug Cindy, what's the first thing you're going to do when you, get, uh, when you get home? And I said, that's easy. I'm going to go get a double cheese whopper. Now, that was back when a double cheese whopper was a whopper. Today, it's a whimper. But back then, it was a whopper. And um, and as much as I would want to, I would refrain from sticking the whole thing in my mouth at one time. I would choke to death on it. But on the other hand, I'm not going to slice it in little morsels because you got to get enough to get the flavor, Right? The bite size, the right bite size, and you learn to kind of just chew and masticate on it and let it linger on the... Some of you are getting pretty hungry for lunch right now, aren't you? You just kind of think your way through it and you feel your way through it. Well, folks, that's what I'm trying to do. 
Because I know particularly today, my goodness, this is so important to grasp this today. But every single, we're into this, these, that, um, and we're not going to treat it like a small group discipleship, but we're not going to just skim through it uh, like a conference uh, moment. We have got to get this in your life. Pastorally, I want you to get these things rooted in your life. I, would, I really want them to be deeply rooted. And then, the, But then as we move into it, there's something else that struck me that maybe as we move now into these opening two verses of chapter 6, is that Paul is such an exquisite preacher and teacher. He's just, he is just so astounding uh, as a preacher and teacher. You see, preachers and teachers who want to preach the word to God's people, all three of those, not just preach, not just preach the word, but preach the word of God to God's people for their, for evangelism and equipping. That you want to be faithful to the word, you want to be clear for the benefit of the listener, and you have to always anticipate what do they need and how are they going to respond. Now, you, you want to do that because if you don't, your email box gets full the next week. What, what will this text elicit in questions? And that's one of the most amazing things about the Apostle Paul. He, antici- he not only asks questions to get you thinking where he wants you, he anticipates your questions. Once he gives you a biblical propositional truth, he then anticipates what you're going to ask. And he goes ahead and answers it so he doesn't have to empty his email box the next week. Or answer 38 questions in the lobby on it. He anticipates it. And he anticipates two questions that are unasked yet. But he goes ahead and answers them because he knows they're going to be asked in light of what he has just taught. You see, he has been in this exposition of the gospel of God and he introduces this gospel that he's unashamed and eager to preach in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And then the first section of Romans is an exposition of why the gospel is so important, why the gospel is good news by giving you the bad news. The first section is showing our situation of being rightly under God's condemnation. And he starts in chapter 1 in verse 18, and he shows how the pagan is under God's condemnation. Then he goes to chapter 2, and he shows in the first part how the religious pagan is under God's condemnation. And then he goes to chapter 3 to show how the Jew is under God's condemnation. And he sums it up in chapter 3 and verse 23, all have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He even shows the depth of that depravity of sin. There is none who seek him. No, not one. They have all turned aside. The poison of the serpent is under their lips and in their to- under their tongue. And as he explains that and expounds that, he shows our situation that we're under condemnation. We're helpless. We're hopeless. We're unwilling. And we're unable. Then comes the second section. God's solution of salvation 
through justification. A justification whereby God takes sinners who are all wrong with God and makes them all right with God and God right within them. This glorious truth of justification whereby that is, um, that is declared to us in chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in our sufferings for God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the glory of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, and we rejoice in the presence and power of the indwelling work of the Spirit of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how can this salvation be given to us? Here's how. We... There was an Adam whom we were all in. Adam the one acted for his many, all of humanity. And when he sinned, we sinned. And when he died, we died. But then there's a greater Adam, the last Adam, the second Adam, Jesus. And there's no comparison between them. But just as the first Adam brought sin and death to all of his seed, the second Adam brings life and everlasting forgiveness and righteousness to all of his seed. Those whom the Father has given to him, he loses none of them. And this glorious truth that we're saved in Adam, we're saved in our second Adam, Christ, and he is greater than the first Adam. By a man came death, by the man came the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ. And how did that happen? Just as Adam's sin we participated in and was imputed to us, so Christ, when Christ, now listen to this, when Christ was on the cross, all of his people were with him on the cross. We were in him. And his obedience to to the Father became our obedience. And his death becomes our death. We have been crucified with Christ. That we were in him. And when he came out of the grave, we came out of the grave. And when he redeemed us from our depravity, then we now live in him. And he anticipates a question. Here's the first question he anticipates. Well, if we sinned in Adam and we died in Adam, and if we are made alive and are saved unto eternal life in Christ as our second Adam, why in the world do we have the Tanakh, the 39 books of the Old Testament? Why didn't you just go, God, from Genesis to Matthew? Why all that particularly? Why the Pentateuch? Particularly, why Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Particularly, why the law of God through Moses? Why didn't you just jump to here? And then he answers, the law. I just read it for you. Go back and look there at verse 20. The law came in. 
Just as Christ is going to come to save his people from their sins. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. First, before he comes, the law is given by God. The law comes in. Why? So that the trespass, the sin, might increase. It's got a purpose for coming. When it comes, now sin is identified and exposed. Because sin is the transgression of the law of God. Sin's already there because we sin in Adam. And we are, we actually sin because of that original sin. And remember, original sin isn't referring simply to him taking the fruit. Original sin is a term we use to tell you the origin of all sin was in Adam's sin. And we are born dead in our sins, therefore we sin. And so what he is saying is now the law comes to give us the bad news so that we can understand the importance, the imperative, and the glory of the good news. And here comes the law. The first thing it does is identify and expose sin. The second thing it does is identify and expose the sinfulness of sin. You see, the law of Moses comes and here's the ceremonial law. Look at all this sacrifices. Look at all these, look at all these, uh, rites and rituals and feast and fast and all of these things constantly telling us there's sin and sin costs and you need a vicarious sacrifice. But bulls and goats can't do it and priests can't intervene for you. You need a better priest and you need a better sacrifice. Sin is sin and sin costs. And sinfulness of sin. And then he goes even further. The sin not only exposes and identifies sin. It, I mean, the law not only exposes and identifies sin. The law not only exposes and identifies the sinfulness of sin. Sin increases, is magnified. But thirdly, sin, the law, then identifies and exposes our sin nature. Because as soon as the law comes, what do we do in our rebellion against God? We will not have you to rule over us. And thus we rebel against his law. He says, don't murder. We find ways to murder and put it under legal sanctions. We, he says, don't commit adultery. We find ways to not only engage in sexual promiscuity, but to legally permit it and extend it to sexual perversion. God's law incites us to reveals our depravity of our sin nature. Therefore, the law comes. Sin increases. And now, the grace of God is magnified because Christ's grace is greater than our sin. Our sin is revealed. The reign of sin is revealed. And then the reign of grace is magnified. Sin's dominion and the dominion of grace are not equal adversaries. Christ's grace is deeper and wider than any of my and all of my sins.
In other words, my sin and God's grace is a mismatch. He wins. Not if I help him, but if he redeems me. It's my sin and God's grace in Christ. No contest. No low contendere. No contest. I grew up loving boxing. And I used to love to watch Rocky Marciano in my young days. And then the unbelievable skills of, uh, of a Muhammad Ali uh, as I got older. I just think, imagine, if we could all be transported back about 30, 40 years ago. And uh, you heard the outline. Um, Harry Reader is going to be boxing Muhammad Ali. I wish you, I hope you come to that match. Not to buy a ticket, but to intervene and say, no, mismatch, no contest. This is not going to turn out well for Harry. Well, when God's grace meets my sin, it doesn't turn out good for sin. It turns out glorious for those who have been rescued by God's grace. No contendery. And then he anticipates a second question. The second question is, wait, 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 wait. You mean what Jesus does secures my salvation? And I can't outsend his grace? Oh, really? Oh, you mean increasing abounding sin reveals increasing and abounding grace? Oh, I've got an idea. Why don't I sin a lot? Because I can't lose my salvation. And why don't I sin a lot? Because the more sin I do, the more grace God has to give. There's only one problem with that statement. (laughs) Number one, well, there's two problems. Number one, when God's grace comes, you don't think that way. If you do, you kill it pretty quickly. But the second thing is, God doesn't have to give grace. God doesn't have to give grace. By definition, grace is a gift. He doesn't owe it to us. But you can see how the mind is working. Oh, if you got a bucket of sin, God gives two buckets of grace. Well, what if I bring two buckets of sin, maybe four buckets of grace? Or I'll tell you what, let's just sin. Oh, marvelous condition. I can sin like I want and still have remission. That's not a very good, you won't find that hymn in our book, nor that lyric. But that's the way the mind begins to think. As the old man keeps trying to rebel against the truth of God's word. So Paul answers. He anticipates that question also. And look how he answers it. Look how he answers it in chapter uh, 6 and verse 1. I read through verse uh, 4. Just to kind of hopefully we'd feel like we're moving. But actually we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we, who are the we? Those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Are we to continue in sin 
that grace may abound. Malediction, apostolic abhorrence. He's already used this phrase five times in the book of Romans. Now he uses it again. God forbid. How can we who died to sin? Now what does that tell you? Stop and think. What does that tell you? Every true believer who has come to Christ did not come to Christ holding sin and holding Jesus. When you come to Christ, this text is telling you something definitively has happened. What is that definitive thing that's happened when you've come to Christ? You have what? Died to sin. You have died to the guilt of sin. He paid it. You have died to the shame of sin. He has removed it. You have died to the power of sin. He has broken it. That's why you are no longer helpless. That's why you're no longer hopeless. That's why you're no longer unwilling. That's why you're no longer unable. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope. You are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have died to sin to live in and to Christ. That's every true believer. Now, let me very quickly tell you, everybody that signed the dot and has joined churches is not necessarily a true believer. You can fool elders who are listening to your testimony. But those who have experienced the converting power of the grace of God through the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God and brought us to a conviction of sin, a confession of sin, and a fleeing to Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. By faith, putting our trust in Him alone, here's what's true about every one of them. Every one of them. You've died to sin. You've died to its power, you've died to its guilt, you've died to its shame, and you have died, uh, you have died to its persuasion. You're dead to it. But it's not dead to you. You no longer live in it, but you still got it living in you. That's why having died to sin for the rest of our life, the evidence of dying to sin and being in Christ is the desire to progressively put to death sin in our life. And by the way, there's something else. I want to say it here. I want to say it more when we get back here. (laughs) But I want to say it here. The believer not only is dead to sin and putting to death the deeds of the sin in their life, they long to rescue the perishing. A believer, a true believer who is dead to sin is on a lifelong search and destroy mission of their remaining sin. And it will not be perfected until we get to heaven. They're also on a search and rescue of other sinners to bring them to Christ. So he says, how can we live in what we have died to? And he affirms we've died to sin. Again, guilt, shame, and power. 
So how can we live in it? He doesn't say it's not living in you. We still have remaining sin, but what we don't have any longer is reigning sin. We are not under its dominion. We can say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Out of a love for Christ who by his unstoppable love through his grace, unmerited favor has brought us from death unto life. Now, folks, I got to do this very quickly and then I'll give you the takeaway. There are this this penchant to say, oh, I'm saved by grace. Oh, wonderful condition. I can sin like I want and still have remission. This notion that now that I've been saved by grace, it doesn't matter as to whether I hate sin or not and whether I kill sin or not. In fact, why don't I just sin? And by the way, even if I sin, won't that get more grace? This perverted logic that is unbiblical and dishonoring and blasphemous to God's grace, to God by being blasphemous to his grace, actually takes hold. And when people respond to it, it's one of two ways. And both of these responses to this issue are bring adulterated heresies to the gospel. They adulterate the gospel with two heresies. One heresy to stop the one heresy is called libertinism or licentiousness or antinomianism. Oh, you know, uh, the law came and showed me my sin. And now that I've seen my sin, I've come to Jesus. And so it really, it, God's grace saves me, not my obedience. Therefore, my obedience doesn't matter. Therefore, my obedience is incidental. In fact, the more I sin, the more it manifests God's grace. That's licentiousness. That's libertinism. That's antinomianism. It's a nomos means law against the gospel use of the law. God's law, remember, exposes sin, exposes the sinfulness of sin and exposes our sin nature. The ceremonial law fulfilled in Jesus, the civil law and the moral law. And Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Now that he has fulfilled the law, now we are free to use the law gospel. You must never be against the law. Now, you must be against any doctrine that says our obedience to the law saves us. Or our obedience to the law enables or allows God to save us. That's that's legalism. That's the second error. But there is a right use of the law. What is the right use of the law in the gospel? In fact, we're going to get to Romans 7. We're in a glorious section. Chapter 6 is giving us the glorious, magnificent doctrine of sanctification. We've moved from condemnation to justification. Now sanctification in chapter 6, 7, and 8. It's a glorious section. Chapter 6 lays it out for us. Chapter 7 tells us about the battle within the old man. And then chapter 8 gives us the triumph of grace and how to walk in the spirit and do war against sin and live unto Christ. It's a glorious three chapters that we're in. That's all the Christian Christian life is wrapped up. That's why I'm trying to get it in bite sizes for us. 
But as, so we say no to antinomianism. A guy called me not long ago from a church nearby and said to me, Pastor, uh, we've been got this guy and he's been preaching grace and, and there's this kind of bohemian Christianity that he's teaching us. And it's almost like who cares about sin? It's almost like being careless about your walk for Jesus. I mean, and if you say pursue holiness, they call you a legalist. Pastor, I think what he said, I think we're getting too much grace. Can we get a little legalism here? You know any preachers to send us? I said, I hope not. Your problem isn't that you're getting too much grace. Your problem is you're getting a dwarfed grace. You're getting a grace that only talks about the declarative blessings of God. Not a grace that calls you to embrace the transformational blessings of God. You've been born again. You're a new creation. You're not under the dominion of sin. Now, he's still got some sin living in you. But you've got the power through the means of grace to go on war against that sin and kill it. Not cope with it, but kill it. Not manage it, but kill it. Not sign peace treaties with it, but kill it. You're a sworn enemy of that. And you've got all the weapons of the Spirit to put it to death. That's what you need to start hearing. And by the way, I never want you to get legalism, which is a doctrine. Here's how you get away from this libertinism is you try to. Here's what you're doing. My I'm saved by faith as long as my works are added to that faith. Here's what legalism teaches. You can be justified if your sanctification is good enough. A pox on both of their houses. Legalism is the idea that our response to God's commandments allows God to save us or enhances God's salvation of us. Wrong. Listen, if you leave this service today and you have a quiet time with Jesus every day the rest of your life, and you lead, every, you lead one person to Jesus every week, and you've got a small group discipleship. And you've got family devotions. And your children have come to Jesus and love you. Your wife even loves you. And counts you a blessing. That's not a bad life. But if that's your life, you will never be more justified then than you are right now. Our sanctification does not add to or enhance or enable our justification. Our works don't enter into justification at any point whatsoever. We are not saved by our works. But we are saved by works. The works of Jesus. Who went to the cross... My sins were put on him. His righteousness was put on me and you if you're in Christ. But our sanctification does not add to, enhance, or allow our justification. But 
This is why. Isn't it amazing? We're going to this unbelievable. I feel so inadequate here. If we are, we are going to this unbelievable section on sanctification, but you can't get loose theologically, logically, or grammatically from the section on justification. Why? Because you can't really do the Christian life in the pursuit of holiness and sanctification without always reminding yourself that that does not save me. What saves me is Jesus and by his grace. And you always have to know I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I am justified by faith. Now, the working out of my faith is a glorious testimony, but it doesn't add to my justification. Do do you get that? I just want to, we're in a small group. Do you get that? I pray and I pray you do. Because as long as you're under the cloud that what you do is what saves you or allows God to save you, forget joy. Forget perseverance. You've got despair and discouragement coming. No, it's what he did. Now we do what we do because his grace enables us to do it. And we do it because it's honoring to him whom we love and whom we love deeply. Well, let me just give you the takeaway so that we can close in prayer. And uh, this is just, uh, for me, it's just a glorious truth that uh, I, I want to share with you um, to the praise of God. And uh, let me just give it to you. It is impossible for those who have died to the reign of sin. That you, you've been converted. If you're converted, you've died to sin. It is impossible for those who have died to the reign of sin to live in sin as they now, under the reign of grace, live in Christ as sworn enemies against their remaining sin that's living in them. Take the time to work through that. When I say it is impossible, I mean it. It is impossible to live under the reign of sin. It's power, it's guilt. Now, Satan's going to tempt you to, but don't. He's going to tell you, oh, there's no way you can get rid of that sin. You're just going to have to cope with that sin the rest of your life. No. I can see it weakened. I can see it removed. I can see it, uh, I can see it assaulted. I can see it weakened in my life. I did not say it's impossible to sin. I did not say that. We have sinned. If any man says he hasn't sinned, he's a liar. I did not say it's impossible to sin. What I said in the application of this text, it is impossible for those who have died to the reign of sin to live in sin. Yes, they still have sin living in them, but they don't live in sin under its power and its guilt and its shame. They now live under the reign of grace in Christ, and that makes us sworn enemies of the remaining sin that's living in us. That's simply the takeaway I would give you. We've died to sin and we live unto Christ. We've died to the power of sin, the guilt of sin, and we're putting, therefore, we're putting to death in the life of sanctification. 
Now, we're going to talk about this positional sanctification and its perfections. We're going to talk about progressive sanctification in this life. We're going to talk about perfected sanctification in the life to come. But right now, I have been delivered from the power of sin. I don't have to sin. It's, I'm not under its dominion. I have been delivered from the guilt of sin. I am forgiven. And now I can go on the war path against sin with the weapons of the Spirit in the context of God's people in the church of Jesus Christ in order to live unto Christ. You see, the law came to show me I needed deliverance from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and from the persuasion of sin. And then the law sent me to Jesus. That's that's the right use of the law. It's evangelistic use. It shows you your sin and you need a Savior to deliver you from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and increasingly deliver you from the practices of sin, and one day deliver you from the presence of sin. That's the evangelistic use of the law. Then there's the discipleship use of the law. The law can't disciple me, but the law can direct me how to love God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and my neighbor. It has no power. But it can direct me how to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, and mind, to love my neighbors myself. And then thirdly, the law, when used evangelistic and used in discipleship and loved by God's people in its gospel use, begins to restrain sin in society. And retard the sinfulness of men so that men who are totally depraved will not live absolutely depraved. That's the right use of the law. So I will not be antinomian, nor will I be a legalist. Sanctification is not my work to allow Jesus to justify me. Sanctification is Jesus' work for me in justification, now being delivered to me in sanctification. As I grow in grace to to deal the death blow to the sin from which he has delivered me from its guilt and shame. So I am being delivered from the power of I have been delivered from the power of sin. I have been delivered from the guilt of sin. I am being delivered from the practices of sin. And one day I will be delivered from the presence of sin. And it's not my sanctification that makes my justification. That's why chapter 4 and 5 do not come after chapter 6, 7, and 8. They come before it. Because when you're right with God, now you can live rightly for God. Increasingly, as you grow, not for grace, but you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Maybe I can just close with this illustration. I'll use Paul's. I mean, I'm sorry, not Paul. I'll use Jesus. Um, I'm going to the big one now, the big illustration. When Jesus talks about being saved, he says, you've got to enter what? What do you have to enter? Anybody remember? You have to enter the, starts with an N. Bingo, narrow gate. You have to enter the narrow gate and then... On the way to glory, you walk what? The narrow path. So let me try to use that illustration. Legalism says, get on the narrow path to get on the nar- get through the narrow gate. We say no. 
Libertinism says, antinomianism says, you can go through the gate, but you can say no to the path. We say, again, a pox on both of your houses. How do you get on the narrow path? You go through the gate. Jesus is the gate. You go through the gate. But as soon as you go through the gate, what is the evidence you've gone through the gate? You're on the path. And that path has got two ditches. Libertinism and legalism. And you say no to them. Christ is my redeemer. His work is sufficient. And he's the one that's working in me and on me. You don't get on the path to go through the gate. But if you go through the gate, the evidence will be as soon as you step through, you're on the path of the gospel life. That is spirit-filled, Christ-centered, grace-enabled for the glory of God. It's our warfare against sin and our following of Christ. And oh, the joy that comes in walking with him and for him. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together in your word. You know, today you may be here and for many years you've come to church to go get on the path in order to get to the gate. No, we arrive in heaven on the path, but you first go through the gate, come to Jesus just as I am. So today you might like to pray with someone about that commitment to Christ. And then comes the narrow path. And brothers and sisters, you may be here today and say, well, I mean, I I tell everybody I've come to Jesus, but (laughs) my life isn't evidencing any pathway for Jesus. Then let's take a look. Have you come to Christ alone for salvation? If so, your salvation by faith will never be alone. You will walk in him, for him, and by him. Your sworn enemy is sin, and your greatest delight is Jesus. And whenever we falter, we turn to him, who delivers us from this body of death. Jesus, come and minister to your people, I pray. Please lay the foundation of justification by faith alone in Christ to set us on the journey of sanctification by the power of Christ and to the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.